0: Here, uh, here we are. We are in, uh, if you're new with us, welcome. We're in the book of Daniel. It's an Old Testament book written in the 6th century BC, so it's about 2,600 years old. You're like, man, I don't know if anything that old has something to say relevant to my life in 2023, but I assure you, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Daniel does have something to, to say to us. We uh, we have just, last week, Trevor finished up chapter 6, which is the beginning of, uh, or, or rather uh, chapters 1 through 6 are the narrative section of Daniel, where we're learning about how Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego operate in the midst of this enemy nation Babylon, and so it's all narrative, it's story, it's pretty easy to understand what's going on and, and in play in those chapters. And now, week uh, seven, chapter seven, we're entering into this prophetic section of Daniel, uh, which is not easy to understand, which actually perplexes us quite a bit. This is, um, it's apocalyptic, biblical, uh, it's it's apocalyptic, prophetic literature. So, uh, this is where, sort of where it starts getting weird, honestly. Like, uh, has anybody in the room, have you ever read, like, like, Ezekiel, you've read... Daniel, you've read Revelation, and you're like, man, this is super cool. Like, these images are pretty crazy, but the deeper you go, the less you actually understand, and the more you start just kind of scratching your head. I had a good friend when COVID broke out in March of 2020, when we started to really feel the effects of it. He's like, man, we should preach through Revelation. I was like, not a chance. We're preaching through Revelation. Like, everything is weird and getting weirder at that point. I'm not just going to, like, take us into it. But I guess, like, is that the right posture? Is that the right posture where we're going, like, we can't, this stuff's hard to understand. It's mysterious. Do we just ignore it because it's hard to understand? Is, is that our approach? 25% of your Bible is apocalyptic, prophetic. Literature, 25%. So you've got Isaiah, you've got Ezekiel, you've got Jeremiah, you've got the minor prophets, you've got Daniel, you've got Revelation. Like these are all talking about uh, the prophetic kind of future out there oriented events. Or is that kind of stuff just for like the preppers? You know, the people building bunkers and got 55-gallon drums full of rice and beans and top ramen or whatever and ammo stores. Is it just for them? Like... I don't think so. Uh, Can it do anything good for you and I in 2023? I think absolutely it can do something good for us in 2023. So here is a basic definition of biblical apocalyptic literature. It'll be on the screen. Biblical apocalyptic is a sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people who are despised and cast off by the world. So it's in your Bibles to enlighten and encourage people who are cast off by the world with what? With a vision of who? Of God, of the God who will come and impose, listen to this language, impose his kingdom on what? On the wreckage rebellion of human history. And biblical apocalyptic communicates this literature or communicates this message through the use of wild and scary and imaginative and bizarre and head-scratching imagery. We should try to understand Revelation. We should try to understand what's in Daniel chapter 7 through 12. We should try to understand Ezekiel as impossible as that feels. Um, And I think it's helpful for us too to accept it when we can't to accept the fact that there's some stuff here that like scholars have dedicated their entire lives to understanding and they're still like, it could be this, it could be this, or it could be this. We don't really know. Um, biblical apocalyptic literature lights this fuse on our imaginations and just lights our minds up with, fires our minds up with color and, and, and imagination around all kinds of possibilities. Uh, things that are way, way, way beyond us. So we'll read here in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, but one of the first things that you'll notice in Daniel chapter 7 um, is this use of inspiring imagery. So in verse 9, you'll, you'll start to, you'll read like, just listen to this. Just consider this for the first time. We'll read it again in a moment. But um, his clothing was, this is describing the ancient of days. His clothing was white as snow. His head like pure wool, thrown It was a fiery flame. Thousands and ten thousands served, worshipped before him. His court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And then it moves on. Behold, with the cloud of heavens, there comes one like a son of man. And this one like a son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed. If, if I asked all of us in this room to depict this image, to depict what's starting to go on in our imaginations and to draw it or to represent it in film or graphic design or something like that, all of like what we would bring to the table would be absolutely wild because this literature is meant to, to really light up and, and, and just set our imaginations off. The imagery brings up fascinating ideas, and it brings up mental pictures, things that we can definitely explore and enjoy. And and so when you approach the biblical apocalyptic literature, you and I do not have to be afraid. Can I get an amen on that? Like, we don't have to be afraid. In fact, like, if we're reading this, if we're looking for the main idea, the message comforts us. That's why this is in our Bibles. Revelation is in your Bible to comfort you. It's uh, there to just like set you off about the end of the world and make you fret and chew your fingernails and wring your hands and like pit out. That's not why Revelation is there. Revelation is actually there to show us King Jesus and to show us his majesty and his dominion and his, and his glory. But here's where we go astray in books like Daniel and Revelation and Ezekiel. Uh, if we get to clarity on identifying the wild stuff, Like if we get to clarity on identifying who the four beastly kingdoms are and how long three and a half times are, but we miss like the main message of Daniel, let's put it that way, we miss that the ancient of days and the son of man reign and have dominion in all times and all seasons, then we have failed to understand Daniel chapter 7. If we figure out the beastly kingdoms, but we miss the big idea, we failed to understand Daniel chapter 7. The key to good exegesis, that's a fancy uh, Greek word that means guide or lead out of. Ex, out of, and Jesus, is the, sort, the root of that is to guide out of. Exegesis is pulling the meaning out of a text. That's what it means. The key to good exegesis is to identify the main point and keep the main point in our view as we continue to read. And it's only then that we like, can chase the rabbits down the trail go on the treasure hunts that we want to. But what we often do when we come to these texts is our minds just get like, our our imaginations fire up and then we start asking these rapid fire questions and pretty soon we're in the weeds and nobody knows what, in like the community group, nobody knows what's going on at that point and everybody's just like slowly backing away from the conversation. You felt that? You're giggling because you felt that. That's real. We've got to aim for the main idea and then when we have the main idea, then we're free to chase and to go on treasure hunts. See, Daniel did not, he says in in chapter seven, verse one, that he wrote this vision in his mind down, but he did not write this down to confuse the people of his day. He wrote this vision in his head, in his dreams. He wrote this vision down to comfort suffering Israelites and to assure them that God was not done with them and that God still had purposes for them. When you and I know, when we know that God has us in his hand, we are far less likely to give in to the beastly kingdoms and to the ways of these beastly kingdoms, the Babylon's of our day, the Babylon of their day. Daniel is in our hands right here to teach us that we are in God's hands. That's why this book is in our Bibles. And we're going to see that no matter what human on the throne, God is in control. So you're asking, what is, I hope you are, what is the big idea of Daniel chapter 7? Here it is. Though evil kings will have their day, it is God who has the final say. Evil kings will have their day, but it is God who will have the final say. Chapter 7 and 8 are here to show us that no matter what is happening, top of the page on the news website that you're reading on any given day, Daniel 7 is here to show us that the Most High will possess the kingdom of God and that kingdom of God will not ever pass away. The whole book of Daniel is a field guide for surviving Babylon. It's a field guide. It's here to give us instruction. It's a field guide for exiles to live faithfully in beastly kingdoms. So evil kings will have their day. It is God who has the final say. And when we start to apprehend this truth, when this truth comes home to us, it steadies us, and it gives us. It begins to give us a long view of the future, so that we can too stay faithful to God in our present, no matter what pressure comes our way. So, what we're going to do right now is we're going to walk through Daniel chapter seven, and uh, and we're going to see what's going on. And I'm going to just read the text and explain it as we go. Note. I will not answer all the questions. You will have many, many, many questions. I will get to some of them. I will annoy you with some of the things that I don't get to. I am sorry, not sorry about that. And then uh, at the end, as we work through chapter 7, then I'm just going to conclude with one big point, which is really a restatement of though evil kings will have their day, it's the Ancient of Days who has the final say. I want to show us why Daniel chapter 7 matters for us today. So if you've got one of the journals uh, that we've provided for you or one of the black Bibles around the room, I think it's somewhere around, um, chapter, or around page 690. If you want to just grab a Bible, I'd love for you to interact with this text and, and to just read along as we read together. But reading God's word is something that's really important to us as a congregation. So we do it every single week. Daniel picks up in verse... Well, actually, I'm going to get a drink here because you, you want me to. I'm about to go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So chapter six has just ended. Daniel is maybe in his 80s, perhaps in his 90s, at the end of chapter 6. And now we go back in time to the time of chapter 5, which is actually about 552 BC, um, way back when Daniel had a dream that really alarmed him. So he says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, He wrote it down. So there was a record, and he told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven. This is showing us, this, the four winds of heaven here, probably the, the, um, the compass points east, west, north, and south. It's showing us that there is a player beyond what is coming in just a moment. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Anytime regularly when you see the word sea in your Bible, which depicts the ocean, it's depicting chaos, and it's depicting uh, something that is dangerous. So the four winds of heaven stir up this great sea. It stirs up chaos, and four great beasts, they come up out of this sea of chaos, and they're different from one another, and then he starts to describe these four beasts, Chapter 7 is a couplet with chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we read about... Nebuchadnezzar having this dream, this king of Babylon, he's super powerful, he has this dream that, that drives him absolutely mad, he can't figure it out. Daniel comes in and interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and there's this statue with four different parts, and it signified four different kingdoms. Babylon, the Medes, and the Persians, they were one unified nation, the Greeks, and then the Romans. Chapters, these four beasts right here in chapter 7 refer to that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. They're talking about the same kingdoms. One other thing, it's interesting, at the beginning of Daniel, Daniel was, uh, he was the one who was coming in and interpreting dreams for people. And now in Daniel chapter 7, it's Daniel who has the dream. And he needs somebody to interpret it for him. And we find out that it's actually an angel, the angel Gabriel. So as I looked... Four four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And the first beast was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. This is describing kingdoms, just so you know. It had eagle's wings, and then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, meaning it was de-winged. It was defanged. It was. it was, uh, it It was. Its power was broken. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. This is likely referring to this powerful king of Babylon, uh, the the man Nebuchadnezzar. He had this humbling that occurred in chapter 4. Trevor taught wonderfully out of chapter chapter 4 a few weeks ago. And behold, so that's Babylon, first beast. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. But this bear is raised up on one side, likely signifying it was a, a joint nation. It was the, the, the Medes and the Persians were comprising one nation. And, but Persia was much more powerful than uh, media, and they would end up overtaking media. So raised up on one side likely means that it's, it's swole on one side, and that would be Persia. It had three ribs. Sorry, that was the only word picture I had in my mind at the moment. It had three ribs in its mouth. Between its teeth. It's vicious. And now it's told. Notice this. It's told. It's given authority from something outside of itself. It's told, arise, devour much flesh. Likely meaning that, that, that the Persians and the Medes would come and overtake, overtake and conquer Babylon. Which they did. Now, verse 6. After this. I looked, and behold, another beast, like a leopard. What, what kind of an animal is a leopard? A leopard is a very quick um, cat of prey, but it has four wings of a bird on its back. This is probably signifying great speed and cunning. It's an incredibly able predator. And this beast actually has four heads, And notice this, dominion was given to it. So another instance here of this beast receiving its power, its dominion from something outside of itself. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. This is speaking of Rome. It had great iron teeth. It devoured, it broke in pieces, and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This horns language is pretty confusing, but horns often signify uh, kings, they signify a seat of power in the Old Testament, and they also signify danger. How many of you have a pet that lives in your house that has horns? Exactly. None of us have horned animals in our houses. Why? Why? because horned animals are dangerous. So this is signifying these dangerous kings and kingdoms. I considered the horns, Daniel writes in verse 8, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. The commentators don't really talk much about what's going on here. I don't think they fully understand, and I certainly don't. And behold, in this horn, this little horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Commentators believe that this little horn likely represents some sort of future antichrist figure who sets himself up against the saints of the Most High But notice right in in verse 9 what happens. We're told about this little horn that has the eyes kind of like a man. It's speaking great things. Great there doesn't mean good. It means arrogant. It means proud and boastful things. And then all of a sudden, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days, notice Ancient of Days is capitalized, the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is a really abrupt transition in Daniel and in this dream. It's meant to clue us in on something important happening. It's almost like this is the, the, the writer's way of saying, don't worry about that little horn, there's something big coming. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, Daniel starts to describe the Ancient of Days. His clothing is white as snow. This is symbolic that he is completely clothed in righteousness no spot or blemish in him. The hair of his head is like pure wool. Wool, oftentimes in the Old Testament, would signify wisdom, and the wisdom is on his head, meaning he has a head of wisdom. He has great insight and wisdom. His throne is fiery flames, and this throne has wheels that are of burning fire. This is uh, signifying that, that The throne of the ancient of days, there's great power and authority in his throne. So he's righteous and pure. He rules with wisdom and goodness, and he is insanely powerful. Verse 10, a stream of fire issues and comes out from before him. That's cool. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. This is Uh, The writer's way of saying there is a numberless multitude that is standing before the ancient of days, praising and worshiping him. And his court sits in judgment. And the books were opened. There's a record of what has happened among these kings and these kingdoms. There's a record and there's someone sitting in judgment over all of the violence and over all of the beastliness of these kingdoms. And then look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that that little horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and it was given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, the ones who came before their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Notice this little section, verse 11 and 12, are sandwiched between the Ancient of Days and this other vision of another powerful being. It's almost like the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man are crushing these beasts. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, whenever you see someone coming in the scriptures on the clouds of heaven, this is a divine appearance. There's divine authority. There's something majestic and and incredible happening here. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one who was like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to this son of man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages, so everybody should serve him. That word serve is a word of worship, should worship him. This son of man who was given dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, Yeah, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there in his vision and asked him the truth concerning all of this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. He's speaking to one of these angels. We'll learn about this, in, to probably Gabriel. We'll learn about this in chapter 8. The, the interpretation that the angel gives Daniel in verse 17 is this. These four great beasts are the four kings who will arise out of the earth, or kingdoms. But the saints, listen to this, comfort. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's the writer's emphasis here saying, it's going to be bad. Ancient kings, these these kings, they will have their day. But it is God who will have the final say. 19. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. Tell me more which was different from all of the rest, exceedingly terrifying. It had teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than than its companions. As I looked, this horn or this king made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the ancient of days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he, the interpreter, this angel said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different than all of the kingdoms. Rome in its conquest was more powerful than the Greeks, more powerful than the Medes and Persians. The extent of their land and their dominance over the known world was extraordinary. Actually, no kingdom has ever been like Rome since Rome. There's something you've probably heard of called the Pax Romana. It's the the peace of Rome. And the way that Rome would make peace was through war they would absolutely suppress all rebellion ruthlessly. That's the way that they did it. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. Rome actually had twelve Caesars, but only two of those, two of those Caesars that Rome had, uh, they only lasted for a couple of months until they were uh, assassinated and moved out of power. They were inconsequential to Rome's history, in other words. Out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. This is arrogance against the Most High. He will come against the people of God. He will wear out the saints of the Most High. Think about what it means here to wear out God's people with persecution and tribulation. And he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Good luck with that one. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, this king, this violent king, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Verse 28, here's the end of the matter, Daniel writes. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The next week we're going to hear about another vision that Daniel has a few years later. So... I just want to jump out of this text and, and I, want to, I want to just build on this point that though evil kings will have their day, it is the Ancient of Days who will have the final say, Who will have the say. Um, the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, they reign over all of the days of all of the people in all of the earth, past, present, future. What Daniel is trying to get across to his readers in Babylon at this time is that God is in control. The book of Daniel is in our hands to teach us that we are in his hands. And no one who hopes in the Son of Man will be put to shame because the Son of Man is king of this everlasting kingdom. This word, this title, Son of Man, it, uh, it's Jesus' preferred title for himself in our New Testaments. 82 times in the four Gospels, 82 times in 78 verses in the four Gospels, Jesus uses this phrase to refer to himself. That's an average of 20 times per Gospel. Jesus is constantly talking about himself as the Son of Man. The Son of David is, is next, or, or Christ is next at like, 16 times, and, and son of David is next at like nine times. 78 times in 82 verses, or 82 times in 78 verses, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. In fact, um, when Jesus is on trial, his sham trial, right before his execution, he's talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are saying, who are you? Who do you think you are? And Jesus actually reaches back into this text in Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, and refers to himself as the Son of Man, he promised that they would see a day when he would come in the future on the clouds of heaven, which is this Old Testament sign of divinity and, and divine authority. So, Matthew chapter 26, uh, 63 through 68, it'll be on your screen. And the, high please, and the high priest said to Jesus, Jesus is on trial, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ. Tell us if you are the Son of God. And Jesus answered this high priest, you've said it, you said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, capital P power there, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then this high priest, he knows what Jesus is doing. He tears his robes in this moment and he says, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? So now this high priest is talking to the people around him. You've heard the blasphemy. What's your judgment? And they answer, He deserves death. This is blasphemous. And they spit in his face and they strike him and they slap him, Jesus, in the face and they say, prophesy to us, you Messiah, prophesy Christ. Who is it then that struck you? If you're the one coming on the clouds of heaven, tell me who just slapped you across your face. Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man who will come with divine authority. And then after his death at the hands of the high priest and the Romans and the Pharisees, Jesus rises from the grave three days after his crucifixion, and he appears over the course of 40 days to more than 500 people at one time, and various people throughout his resurrection appearance over this 40 days. He appears, and Luke is one of his disciples, and he is a medical doctor, and he desires to write an orderly account of Jesus's life. And so, he writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he also writes the, the book of Acts in our New Testaments. And Luke is given this report from the disciples as Jesus was taken up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll probably be familiar with verse 8. Maybe not. Maybe you haven't seen this in the, in the verses that follow verse 8. Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. He's commissioning his disciples, and you're going to be my witnesses into the ends of the earth. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and notice this, a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, what's the big deal? While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, two, behold, two men stood by these disciples in white robes, and they said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go. He'll come on the clouds." His disciple, Jesus's apostle John, he wrote the book of Revelation for us, and. He saw Jesus raised from the dead. He saw Jesus crucified before his resurrection. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. The Apostle John, after Jesus' resurrection, gave his life for the sake of the kingdom. He pastored churches into his old age. He was persecuted violently by Rome. Now, tradition holds that John was, had hot boiling oil poured over his skin. He was burned uh, his entire body over. He survived it. And then he was banished to an island called Patmos. And it was on Patmos that he was given a vision from God, which is the last book in our Bibles, the book of Revelation. And this is how the Apostle John opens up Revelation in verse 4 through 7. Chapter 1, 4 through 7. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. He's experienced no peace at the hands of men, but grace from God and peace from Him who is. At his present tense, who was, past tense, and who is to come. Grace and peace from the ancient of days. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. John is reaching back into Daniel chapter 7. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. To him, to Jesus, who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood, and who made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him, listen to this language, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Jesus in his return. Take note of that. Every eye will see him. We'll come to that later. Even those who pierced him. And as he comes in judgment, all of the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. John says, even so, let it be. Amen. Daniel chapter 7 is this uh, comfort to the, to the church. Revelation chapter 1 that John just wrote is this comfort to the suffering church that no matter what king is having their day, it is God who will outlast them and overpower these kingdoms and have the final say. The practical implication for this for us is that no matter what is happening in our world, no matter what is happening to our world, no matter what is happening in your personal world and to your personal world, we can choose to trust God with it. To trust God with your future is actually the wisest thing that you can do with your future. You're wondering about plans for the future? Wondering about how my future is going to go? To entrust your future to the Lord Jesus Christ who lives today is the most wise thing you can actually do with your future, and it's a choice that you don't even have to wait to make. You can start leaning into that choice today. I I know this uh, for a fact because I've talked to you and some of you have shared your stories. There are people in this room among us, certainly people outside of, of our church who are facing serious difficulty regarding your future, you got some options open in front of you, none of them are preferable. Had a diagnosis, nobody even knows about it. It's not preferable. You're struggling. It's painful. And God is near to you who call on him in hope. God is near to everyone who calls on him and hope. So for the disciple of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, while, your circumst- while the circumstances that you're going through may not be relieved or resolved in the way that you would like them to be, the way that you would plan if you were the architect of your future, the Ancient of Days has given you a king who will see you through. That's the most solid reality in all of the world. The Ancient of Days has given his people a king who will see us through. And though you are being worn out today, your eternal king will continue to provide for you and he will continue to meet your needs. Just like he has met the needs of the saints who have gone before you and just like he will meet the needs of the saints who come after you and I. And even if you're persecuted for your allegiance to Jesus, if you're canceled, if you are fired, if your friends mock you, maybe even if you are killed uh, for remaining true to Jesus, if you're faithful to him unto death, God will come through for you. Delivering you and I from the penalty for our sin and uh, and also rescuing us from eternal death. Even when we die in bodily form, the Lord Jesus Christ rec- he, he, he rescues us from the penalty of our sin, which is eternal death. He rec- rescues us and he gives us something completely different in its place. We deserve death for rebelling against him and he actually offers us abundant life. And I, I, I want to speak to those in the room who, who you don't consider yourself a disciple of Jesus. You are, you're considering his claims, you're, you're, you're wondering about who he is, you're wondering if there's veracity, if there's truth to his life, if this guy really was, maybe you believe he really was killed, but it's a little more doubtful for you to believe that he was raised from the dead. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, your first move is to trust him for the very first time. That's your first move. That's what he wants from you. The ancient of days, I'm convinced of this, just praying through this this morning, late last night. The ancient of days is appealing to you right now in this moment. Through the preacher, through his word, through the, 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 the sense that you have of his voice in your spirit, he is appealing to you right now. He's revealing himself to you through the Bible. And his appeal to you is to entrust yourself to his son. The son of God, the son of man whose kingdom is eternal. And his appeal to you is to own without excuse the ways that you have disregarded his rule. The ways that you have disregarded his reign, the ways that you have disregarded his law, the ways that you have disregarded his goodness, the ways that you have disregarded his people, the ways that you have disregarded his holiness, the ways that you have disregarded him. He is appealing to you. His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, has come and has lived in your place living up to this righteous, wise, pure, powerful standard of God that you and I have fallen short of and Jesus has come to do this for you and for me. He's come to do this for us. And then Jesus, the son of man, this son of God, he died this guilty death under the wrath of God that you and I do not want to die. He died like these beastly kings who deserve to die. Jesus died a criminal's death and he did that for you and I. And what he asks of you and what he asks of me is to receive the gift of his mercy with the empty hands of our faith. That's what he asks for from us. And when you do that, when I do that, when we receive the gift of his mercy, God gives us the kind of life that Jesus has earned. He gives us the kind of life that Jesus deserves. And this Jesus, the Son of Man, will come on the clouds of heaven with divine authority. And in that moment, as you believe him, as you entrust your future to him, he will have made you a saint, and that confirmation will ring true deep in your soul that you are one of His. You are beloved, a son, a daughter. You are chosen by Him and your eyes will see Him as He comes on the clouds of heaven. And though we are guilty at one time of rejecting Him, that will not be the verdict for you. That will not be the word that is preached deep down within your soul. You will understand that you are His beloved, that you have been pardoned by this gracious God. And instead of wailing at His coming, we will shed tears tears of joy and relief. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is the power of God. Daniel is in our hands to teach us, to assure us that we are in God's hands, and nobody who, who, who believes in Jesus Christ, who puts our hope in him, will be put to shame. That's the promise of the Scriptures. Back to, in closing, a practical implication of Daniel 7. No matter what is happening in our world, no matter what is happening to our world, we can choose to trust our God with it. The very best thing that you and I can do with our future is to trust our future to God. And we can do it right now. We don't have to wait. So you can respond to the gospel for the very first time. You can respond to the gospel for the thousandth time. The church of Jesus Christ never moves beyond the gospel. It's the way into our faith and into his kingdom. And it's the way on forever and ever and ever. We keep coming back to the good news that Jesus Christ has lived, has died, has risen, and will come again for me. That's what we live in too. Though evil kings will have their day, it is the ancient of days who has the final say. And he knows what he's doing in all times and all seasons and all ages. Now, I just preached the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. My own heart came alive in understanding it and believing it again and again. Your own heart came alive believing the gospel and trusting your future and your soul to the Lord Jesus. We all just heard it. We all just wrestled with it together how did we get in on it? How did we get the gospel? Like, how did it actually come to us? God knows what he's doing in all times, and all seasons, in all ages. If you're tuned out right now, tune in, please. Babylon. Daniel is with his friends there in Babylon. They've been taken out of their country to modern-day Iraq, to where Babylon, historic Babylon is. And they're wondering, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? We know we've been disobedient for centuries. We've rejected your rule and you've brought in Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to sack our city and destroy our temple and to take us off as a measure of your judgment. Will you forsake us? Will you leave us? Your, your, your heavy hand of judgment is too much for us. We're not gonna make it. I, I, like, as I put myself into their shoes, I just cannot help but, but, but dis bear at times at what it must have felt like to be ruled over by Babylon, but being a faithful Israelite. God comes through for his people. He comes through on his promises. This nation would come up after Babylon. The Medes and the Persians would unite. And the Medes and the Persians would move into Babylon. We read it in chapter 5. They killed Belshazzar. They, uh, they, they, they took control of Babylon. And eventually, the Medes and the Persians, Persia would overtake the Medes, and then it would just be the kingdom of Persia. It was the most powerful nation on earth to date. A king would be ruling in Persia, a guy that we read about in our Bibles in 2 Chronicles named Cyrus. Cyrus, as part of his rule uh, to subjugated peoples, he wanted their loyalty. And so Cyrus would actually let these people practice their faith in his kingdom. And what Cyrus did for the Israelites was he full-on bankrolled, funded to the penny their entire return back to the capital city of Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the temple. He footed the entire bill. He gave them letters of protection, said to surrounding nations, if you harm these guys, you've got my wrath to deal with. They had a letter of protection and all the money they needed to rebuild and rededicate the temple. But Persia didn't last because Greece would come in Behind Persia, Alexander the Great would conquer Persia in a period of 10 years. Nobody had ever seen this leopard, uh, this king, with this kind of speed and quickness and destruction. And his kingdom would reign over the course of the known world. But what we got with Greece was a new trade language, Koine Greek. For the very first time since Babel in world history, the entire world is united under one trade language. Your New Testament is written in Koine Greek. For the very first time in history, the good news of Jesus can be proclaimed over the known world in one language. But the Greeks wouldn't last, because Rome would come in and destroy the Greeks. But Rome created a system of roads that last to this day that have united the known world. So now the language of the gospel, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, now can flood all across the known world. There is no inhibition. It goes into Africa. It goes into Asia. It goes into Europe. And it makes its way to us in North America. The ancient of days knows what he's doing in all times and seasons. Though evil kings will have their day, it is the ancient of days who will have the final say. And so we read in Daniel chapter 7, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to Jesus, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, that's us, Nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion, his kingdom has broken in. It is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Praise be to God. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Would you preach this good word of the gospel to our souls that we are no longer on the line for our sin. The stuff that we have done, the stuff that we're enmeshed in now, the stuff that we will do in the future. But through our faith in you, our empty hands of faith, we receive mercy. Your spirit testifies with our spirits that we're children of God. Would you assure your church of that right now? And would you draw those in the room who have not yet been believers, would you draw them to faith? Would you draw us to be one body with one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one kingdom, united for all of our days? Would we, as we take communion, would we rejoice at the good news of the gospel? As we sing, would we rejoice in our souls at the good news of the gospel? And Lord, would you animate us? Would you give us courage and boldness? We don't have to worry about being canceled. We don't have to worry about even being killed. Uh, would, you, would you start to erode the fear within us of mockery, the fear within us of being marginalized in our communities and in our workplaces that we would become a people who winsomely and boldly speak of the King of kings and Lord of lords who has an everlasting kingdom, that we are a part of his kingdom and would we proclaim that others can get in on this too and because of it, our future is so bright. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen.